Hello, everyone. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me to come here to this beautiful place uh, and to be with you all. Happy Valentine's Day. I believe that you are all going to hear this on Valentine's Day, uh, which is appropriate since this is our kind of national holiday of love. And that's what I'm going to be talking about now. Not the romantic love that sells all the flowers and candy, but a kind of love which is presented in scripture as equally beautiful, deep, rich, life-shaping. Uh, and that is the love of friendship, what some have called spiritual friendship. I'm going to try to do five things, which I think means I get four minutes per thing. So I think I can do this uh, without rushing. Uh, first, I'm just going to show friendship in scripture, uh, the places and models uh, that we have of friendship in the scriptures. Then I'm going to talk about what these portrayals of human relationships teach us about our relationship with God. Uh, then, very quickly, how uh, communities, how other societies have tried to live out these models of spiritual friendship uh, and how we can love one another according to them. Fine, uh, then, small caution, I think there are ways that this can go wrong, and I will talk about one of those ways. And then, finally, what is the promise that spiritual friendship can offer for us today? Uh, so, we will begin uh, with Scripture and with the Hebrew Bible, where there are a couple stories that offer models for a life-shaping friendship but, uh, that can also teach us about God's love for us. The first is in the two books of Samuel, First and Second Samuel, when we see the love shared by David and Jonathan. At the time that this story begins, uh, Jonathan is essentially the prince. He's the heir to the throne. His, his father Saul is king, uh, but God has chosen David to be the next king, not Jonathan. So you might expect them to have a rivalry, but in fact, the moment they meet, we learn in First uh, Samuel 18. By the time David finished speaking with Saul, Jonathan's life became bound up with David's life. He loved him as his very self. Jonathan and David made a covenant because Jonathan loved him as his very self. And that phrase is going to get repeated a few times uh, in describing them. So this is the, this love that they share, which will last at least through Jonathan's death, uh, is deeply personal. Uh, there's a lot of emotion in it, which we'll see in a moment. It also imposes obligations. Uh, Jonathan makes a great deal of sacrifices for David. Uh, it is bound up with his obedience to God. Jonathan, I think, believes that this is God's will, but it's, uh, and it requires him to sacrifice his relationship with his father for a while, uh, his position in the kingdom, he has to accept that he is not going to be the next king, uh, and his physical safety uh, in, in order to obey God and to love David. Uh, that love is expressed in part as obedience. There's a point at which he says explicitly to David, I will do whatever you tell me. And it's because he trusts uh, that David is chosen by God to be the next king, and also, I think, because they really love each other, as they tell us. Uh, they, Jonathan says, oh, so they perform this covenant, which is a ritual that they would have understood in their society in which Jonathan gives David his armor, signifying that they, that David is now 
uh, united to him. Their families are united, which Jonathan says twice. Uh, he, it's very important to him that he be counted as a member of the household of David. This is a little unusual too, right? You would think that David would be the one who wants to be in the royal household. But in fact, it's Jonathan who says, the important thing for me is that I can be in your household. Uh, eventually, uh, Jonathan and his father Saul are killed, fighting together, fighting side by side. And we hear David's lament for both of them, but especially in like a deeply poignant way, his lament for Jonathan, where he says in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 1, I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. Most dear have you been to me. More wondrous your love to me than the love of women. Which like, given that David is probably the Bible's most notorious heterosexual, for him to say your love was more wondrous to me than the love of women, I think is intended to express something very important. Uh, so this is a love that is characterized by obedience, characterized on Jonathan's side by deep sacrifice, uh, and uh, in obedience to God, and is also clearly personal to both of them. Uh, we next encounter a similar kind of promise, I think, a similar kind of pledge in the book of Ruth. Uh, the book of Ruth kind of gets started when uh, Naomi's husband dies. Naomi is a Hebrew wom woman living in a foreign country, and so all her daughters-in-law are foreigners. Uh, they, I believe all her children are dead, so they all can choose whether they have any obligations left to their mother-in-law at all. Naomi says, I'm going to go back to my own people, the Hebrew people, and only one of her daughters-in-law says, I will come with you. Uh, that is Ruth. Ruth is a foreigner. She's a Moabite. Uh, and she, but she chooses to go with her mother-in-law to the land of the Hebrew people. And more than that, she chooses to follow the Hebrew God, the God of the Bible. She expresses this in like a gorgeous, essentially a song uh, of promise where she says in Ruth chapter one, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. Uh, because Ruth makes this choice to be with Naomi, she meets the Hebrew man, Boaz. Because she meets Boaz, she becomes one of the ancestors of Jesus. And in fact, one of the only women who's named in the genealogy of Jesus that we get in the New Testament. Uh, so this clearly, her choice of Naomi, her love of Naomi, and her, again, her uniting of that personal love with the love of Naomi's God shapes her whole life. Uh, in the New Testament, this image of life-shaping friendship, life-shaping love uh, outside of marriage or the nuclear family, uh, reaches its height in uh, in Jesus's own life, as especially we see in the Gospel of John. I could talk for like a year about the Gospel of John, it is my favorite gospel, but instead I will simply say a couple small things. Uh, one is that Jesus actually defines both his own sacrifice on the cross and our our discipleship to him as friendship. In John chapter 15, he uh, yeah, John chapter 15, he says. No one has greater love than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. And I feel like we've heard this, many of us have heard this so many times that it's lost some of its shock value. But I think if you ask the average person on the street, like, what is the greatest love? They would say, maybe to lay down your life for your children or your mom. If they were like super holy, we might think that they would say to lay down your life for an enemy. But Jesus actually uses the image of friendship to tell us what he's going to do for us on the cross because he's inviting us into a relationship that he thinks of as friendship. 
He explains to us what does that mean? What is friendship with Jesus? He tells us immediately after this, you are my friends if you do what I command you. I have called you friends because I have told you everything I have heard from my father. So friendship with Jesus involves intimacy with Jesus. He shares with us all that he has. It involves his sacrifice for us. Uh, and it involves our obedience. All these things are bound up in Jesus's friendship. Uh, in this sense, he's a friend of all the disciples, of everyone who follows Jesus. We now can be Jesus's friends as deeply as anybody in the New Testament. But there's also a particular relationship that he had, his friendship with John, who's sometimes called John the Beloved, because in his own gospel, he refers to himself only as the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Uh, it, to him, his own name is not important. What is important is the love that he received from Jesus. Uh, he, we see his intimacy with Jesus several times. He leans on Jesus's breast at the Last Supper. And maybe most clearly we see at the cross, John, I believe, is the only man among the disciples who's named at be, as being present at the cross at all. Uh, and in the Gospel of John, in chapter 19, Jesus turns to him, looks, sees him and his mother Mary, Jesus' mother Mary, at the foot of the cross and gives them to one another. He makes them kin to each other. He says, woman, behold your son, meaning John, and tells John, behold your mother, meaning Mary. Because Mary loves Jesus and John loves Jesus, they become kin to one another. So John's friendship with Jesus becomes a form of kinship that, again, like the friendship of David and Jonathan and Ruth and Naomi, unites households. Uh, and we hear, from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. So these loves have obligations which come with them of care, of practical caring for one another. So these are, I think, our basic models of friendship in the Bible. Uh, they exist not only to teach us how we can love an one another, but like all the love stories in the Bible, they teach us how God loves us. In the, and I'm just going to like quickly suggest, uh, the reason I want to say this is because it shows us how real and how deep the love of friendship truly is in scripture. Uh, Jonathan's love of David, I think, is an image of foreshadowing of Jesus' own self-surrender. He strips himself of his power uh, in order to clothe us in it, as Jonathan strips himself of his armor. He gives up his divine kingship, dying the death of a criminal on a cross. Uh, he not only risks his physical safety, as Jonathan does, but actually loses his life for his friends. Uh, Jonathan is both an image of our love of Jesus in his obedience to David and to God. He's also an image of Jesus's love of us in his sacrifices, in his willingness to give everything for his friend because he loves his friend and it's the will of God. Uh, Ruth and Naomi, I think, express a lot of things about the the love that God can have for us, but particularly I think it's important that Ruth is not a Hebrew woman. And so in her love of Naomi, she's brought into the Hebrew people in a foreshadowing of the way that the Gentiles will be brought into the entire church. Uh, this is in, not exactly a prophecy, but a promise to us that we too can be like Ruth and love Naomi's God. Uh, I'm not sure I even need to say more about what Jesus's words mean for the theology of friendship in our salvation. He kind of tells us what friendship with him is. Uh, 
because of these, well, partly because of these beautiful images of friendship and models of friendship, uh, Christian societies have tried to leave out friendship as a form of love that had public honor, often carried obligations, and that had a structure that people knew they could enter into. The covenant that David makes with Jonathan is not the last covenant we'll see. Uh, there were, in, in many societies, the ones I know best are English, uh, forms of promises between friends that would unite their households. They would pledge to care for one another until death and even after death in prayer. And they would become kin to one another. Friendship could be its own form of kinship that others would recognize. Uh, there are lots of ways to do this. One that we're familiar with today is godparenthood. You name a friend to be your child's godparent, and in that way bring them into your family on a spiritual level. Your friendship with them now becomes uh, woven into the fabric of your life in the church. Uh, but there, I'll tell one quick story of an even more, I think, like clear portrayal of the unity of faith in God and love of a friend, which is a ceremony that was performed in some parts, times, and places in medieval England, where two friends could go to the church steps, uh, pledge to care for one another and unite their households for the rest of their lives, go into church and hear mass together, exchange the kiss of peace, uh, and receive the Eucharist together, receive communion together. And that would be the seal of the promise that they had made to one another to be kin and to serve God together, to walk in faith together. Uh, currently, I, so these forms of love and these public promises fell out of use for, they were in use for a long time. By about the 19th century, they pretty much disappeared. The reasons for this are complicated, but the important thing is that we lost them. We lost them, and now when you become a Christian, speaking as a convert, when you become a Christian, when you, when you come into the church and people tell you what's in the Bible, it's as if those pages are blank to us. They don't tell us that there are forms of love that teach us about God's love for us other than marriage and the parenting relationships. Uh, and so now as people begin to look and say, what what's out there for me if I'm not going to get married, if I don't have children, if I don't have a good relationship with my parents, are there other ways that I can build my life and understand my life? We now have people who are reviving these practices of public promises of friendship, of covenants of friendship. Uh, and I have friends myself who are doing this. That I think, you know, I'm going to leave that to you to determine what that might mean for your own life. But I think it is a, a kind of return to the sources and to the wellspring of our faith, faith in the word of God. At this point, I have to drop my caution, though. I said I was going to warn you. Uh, I think it's a mistake to turn friendship into another exclusive relationship that crowds out our membership in the church, uh, or our kind of our love of all the followers of Christ and of all people. Uh, right now, marriage can seem like a thing that some people get to have, like, uh, and other people are shut out of. Valentine's Day is a painful holiday for a lot of people because they feel that it's a reminder of something they're shut out of. I don't want friendship to become that, and I especially don't want friendship to become that in the, ch in the church, uh, among those who love Jesus. And so I think it's worth remembering Matthew 12, uh, verses 46 to 50, when somebody tells Jesus, the people tell Jesus, your mother and your brothers are standing outside. And Jesus' response is, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? 
and stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my heavenly father is my brother and sister and mother. I don't think this is a slam on Mary. I think he's saying that his love is all-encompassing, that his love is for all of us, and so our love also cannot be restricted to those we like, uh, to those we have personal feelings for. It has to be a community love as well, uh, and, a com- and a care for those who do not necessarily have the domestic relationships, including friendships, that might otherwise protect them. But so having, having warned you and said this is not a solution to the problem of loneliness uh, or of relationships in, uh, among Christians, I guess I can say, what does it promise us? There, t- there are a few things. One, I think it promises us that our current society's fairly narrow concepts of love and family are not the only ones available to us. Uh, that there is, there are more ways to love in the Bible than we have been taught or that we see in the movies, uh, or hear in pop music, etc. And the other thing is, speaking now as, as a lesbian, uh, these are images of same-sex love. These are images of love between men and between women that are in scripture. Uh, the people who first introduced me to Christ did not present this this way. And it took me a long time to even learn that there were models and guidance in scripture for the longing to love another woman that I felt. Uh, I don't think you need to get into any questions of sexual morality to have this conversation. I'm a Catholic. I accept my church's sexual morality. But the, the thing I want to talk about today is actually just that we don't tell gay people, that there is same-sex love in scripture. And so people often grow up feeling that, that this part of their life is just almost invisible to God and to the people who love Jesus, when that's not true at all. And so I think in a special way, although these are stories for everyone who longs for a deeper friendship in their lives, or who wants guidance in living out uh, sacrificial friendship, a friendship that can truly make commitments to others, I think it is, in a special way, good news for people who know that they have a deep longing to love and serve someone of the same sex. Uh, I feel like I had some clever ending, but I'm probably running up on my time now. So instead, I will just say uh, that the main purpose, I think, of Scripture is to teach us what love is. God is love. And in teaching us who God is, Scripture shows us what love looks like in practical terms of care and support and also in the deeply spiritual truths that we'll turn to at the most wrenching moments of our lives when love becomes sacrifice. We see this in Scripture's images of marriage, in the Song of Songs, uh, in the image of Jesus as the bridegroom, the church as the bride. We see it in parenting, in, uh, in God the Father, and we also see this beautiful, practical, sacrificial love in scripture's depictions of friendship. All right. Thank you very much.